0: Well, good morning. For any of you who might not know me, my name is Matthew Renborg. Um, I am currently a student over at Duke Divinity School, and I'm also the pastoral intern with Oak Church this week, or this year, <laughs> and this week. Um, before we get into this material, would you all pray with me? Lord Jesus Christ, You are the Wonderful Counselor, and yet we confess that your words can be difficult for us to understand. Move in our hearts this morning, and help us to better see and understand the ways of your abundant life. Challenge us, surprise us, inspire us, shape our hearts so that we might be wholly yours. May the Holy Spirit guide and direct us in the ways of your kingdom and the hope of your eternal life. Amen. So to get things started today, I wanted to take some time actually to review some of the things that we've been talking about already during this Epiphany season. I have to say, it's been a pretty remarkable journey. It's uh, so for for a lot of you who have been here, this will just be a reminder. But you've just if you've just been joining us today or in the last couple of weeks, hopefully this will help you get an overall lay of the land. We started off Epiphany with this wonderful collaborative service uh, for the Feast of the Three Kings with Canu, who is a congregation with whom we share this space. It was a really wonderful and clear reminder of all the ways that Christ calls us to celebrate and worship with people from all nations to worship together and and to come into a life of giving and receiving gifts. After that our very own Sarah Neff preached on Jesus's baptism in Luke 3. She helped us to think about the really great mystery and miracle of Jesus's identity as Emmanuel. God with us, God in the flesh, Jesus as God who stands among and alongside us, joins us in community, but also draws us into a life that surpasses even our wildest expectations. Then Charlene Brown joined us and preached a really remarkable sermon on Isaiah 30. She talked about all the ways that we are so prone to revert back to Egypt to the old familiar stories that we tell ourselves about who we are and what is possible in this world. And she also helped us to hear God's eager call that draws us out of these old stories and into the mystery and the new hope of the life of faith. And after that, Pastor Chris preached on Luke 4. And in this passage, Jesus commences his ministry by reading a passage from Isaiah as a way of proclaiming good news for the poor and to declare the year of the Lord's favor or the year of jubilee and Chris helped us think about what it means to live in that year of jubilee the Sabbath of Sabbaths this time of freedom and liberation abundance thanksgiving and worship the following week John Chandler joined us to continue on with Luke 4 and he told us about how this year of jubilee and the idea of shalom that comes with us really can only happen if everybody is included in it. And so we have to move beyond the desire to keep this promise for ourselves and instead work to draw all people into God's eternal and abundant life. And then finally last week, Chris preached on Isaiah 6. And there we heard about Isaiah's remarkable call story of of God filling and overshadowing the temple and the seraphim, these flaming snake angels who are flying down with, with glowing embers to purify the prophet. And then Isaiah accepts this hard call to proclaim the word of truth to a people who were not going to listen to him. And so we thought about what it means to stand on holy ground in the presence of God and what it is that this demands of our lives. And so that brings us up to today, Luke 6. And honestly, I was pretty thrilled when I got to see that this was the passage that I was going to be able to preach on. Jesus' words here are so rich no matter when we hear them, but I think even more so now in this time and place when all these conversations have been in the air around us. And so my goal for this sermon really isn't going to be to turn over a whole lot of new ground. Instead, I want to try to explore the ways that all of those ideas, all of those conversations tie together in this really rich tapestry that all brings us in to a center around Christ. And my hope is is that as we continue to grow in our ability to see that world, that the words that we hear in Luke 6 will be less and less surprising to us. And that instead of thinking that Jesus must be trying to describe some upside-down, funhouse world, that we'll actually begin to see that Jesus is simply describing the only reality that there is. So here we go. As you can see on the screen, I want to start this back in Isaiah 30. And if you remember there, in verses 1 through 5, we heard these words. Doom to you, rebellious children, says the Lord, who make a plan which is not mine, who weave a plot but not in my spirit, piling up sin on sin, setting out to go down to Egypt without consulting me, taking refuge in Pharaoh's refuge and hiding in Egypt's shadow. Pharaoh's refuge will become your shame, hiding in Egypt's shadow your disgrace. Though their officials are in Zoan, and their messengers reach Hanes, all will become shamed because of a people who can't assist them. They are no help. They are no profit. Rather, shame and disgrace. We can go to the next side. So when Charlene was with us, she helped us to think about, again, what it means for us to seek refuge in Pharaoh and in Egypt. She described the ways that we so easily and often fail to trust in God. And instead of faith, we turn to these old and familiar narratives about who we are and what's possible in this world. And even though we know that these stories limit us, we keep returning to them because they feel secure. And because of this, we so often fail to truly explore the life that God intends for us to live. And so, keeping that idea still in our minds, I also want us to remember that Egypt is Egypt. Can you go to the next slide? Egypt as an economy, as a nation state. Egypt as an empire. Empires play a huge role throughout the Bible, from Egypt to Assyria, to Babylon, and finally to Rome. Empires are always kind of looming on the horizon. And this isn't a coincidence. I think it's one of the ways that the Bible acknowledges that our lives are contained within and deeply shaped by the systems and the structures of power in our world. And these systems don't merely enforce laws and build roads. Instead, they have an enormous influence on teaching us who we are and what this world is capable of. And so if you then take these two ideas, the idea of a limiting narrative, and then you combine it with the idea of these structures of power as a way of understanding who and what Egypt is, I think that we can start to discern an idea that lies at the center of this, at the heart of Egypt, at the heart of empire, and one of those is this claim that human prosperity is achieved through power and through wealth. The goal of empires then is always going to be to increase their power and to increase their wealth. And so everything from their laws to their infrastructure to their military engagements to the technology that they use to their education systems all of these become oriented around this goal that's meant to increase power and to increase wealth and this is just as true today as it was 3000 years ago i mean so often in our conversations we say that the decisions that are supposed to improve our lives are going to be the ones that improve or increase our our incomes and our gdp of course this also means that empire is a world of competition And so for every person that rises to the top, there's going to be some person, some community, some creature or some place that is losing ground. They're being diminished for the sake of the other's gain. And that's also a story we find in the Bible. The people of Israel were living in slavery and in oppression in Egypt. The Egyptian empire had claimed their lives as the property of the empire, so that Egypt could become more powerful. So then in Exodus 3, God appears to Moses and says this, I've clearly seen my people oppressed in Egypt. I've heard their cry of injustice because of their slave masters. I know about their pain. I've come down to rescue them from the Egyptians in order to take them out of that land and to bring them to a good and broad land a land that's full of milk and honey. Now the Israelites' cries of injustice have reached me. I've seen just how much the Egyptians have oppressed them. So get going. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt." And so God brings the people out of Egypt and through the wilderness and to the promised land to become the nation of Israel. Here, though, I think it's really critical for us to remember that Israel was not created to be another empire. Israel was not to become a new Egypt that just has a new name. This was not going to be an Egypt where they got to keep the power instead of someone else. Israel was going to be a new kind of nation. Instead of being a nation that pursued its prosperity and power and in wealth, It was going to be a nation that pursued prosperity through faith in God, a radical faith in God, and through service to their neighbors, and through love. And the question at the center of an Israelite's heart was not going to be, what is it that I can take and claim from this world for myself? But what is my responsibility to God? What is my responsibility for my neighbor? And this idea sounds really lovely, doesn't it? Especially, it sounds nice when we're in a place like this, in a place of of worship and prayer and meditation. But then when we go out into the world, the story becomes a little more complicated. Next slide. The other side of this faith is that it feels tremendously vulnerable. You're opening yourself up to the world and suddenly you realize just how much of your body is soft and exposed flesh." And so this brings us to last week when we were talking about Isaiah's call story in Isaiah 6. We heard about how this prophet was going to be speaking a word of truth to a, a stubborn people who were not going to listen. The prophet was going to be basically yelling at a brick wall. In Isaiah chapter 7 verse 1, the very first thing that we read after Isaiah's call story, we finally meet that brick wall, those stubborn people. But here, I think that we as readers might get the chance to realize that maybe we're not quite so holy and righteous as we'd like to think. In this passage, we read that in the days of Ahaz, who was Jotham's son and the grandson of Judah's king Uzziah, Aram's king Rezin, and Israel's king Pekah, was Ramalia's son, came up to attack Jerusalem, but they couldn't overpower it. When the house of David was told that Aram had become allies with Ephraim, their hearts and the, and the hearts of their people shook as the trees of a forest shake when there is a wind. So here's this scene, right? The kingdoms of Judah and Israel have been separated from one another. Israel, the Northern Kingdom, has formed an alliance with a couple other kingdoms, and together they're coming down to conquer Judah, to conquer Jerusalem. Jerusalem is soon to be under siege, and the people of Judah are afraid. You know What stubborn and foolish people, right? Of course not. Maybe in our best moments, we know that we don't need a wall to keep out immigrants. But what would we do if the people on the other side of that border were literally an invading army? What would we say to them then? Let go and let God? As ridiculous as this might sound to us, that in a sense is the message of truth that the prophet Isaiah has for the people. As the story continues here in verse three, we read, then the Lord said to Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz and say to him, take heed, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands, these two invading kings. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. I wish I could tell you that King Ahaz trusted in Isaiah's words. Well, you're all smart people here. We've just read Isaiah 30. Where do you think Judah turns, ultimately, for help? They go right back to Egypt. They form an alliance with Egypt, their, fav- their former slave masters, in this desperate attempt to preserve their own security. And to our modern years, if we're really being honest, I think this sounds pretty reasonable. Sure, we, we love God and we have faith, but we also live in this real hard world And sometimes we need a strong hand to help out our faith a little bit, right? The thing is, that's not what the Bible says. In Israel, the idea of a monotheistic faith was a lot more complicated than only praying to one God and only calling God by one name. You can go to the next slide. The God of Israel is a God whose presence and whose life is understood to permeate all of creation. And so to worship that God means to to bring one's entire life into praise and trust and service. And the, the faith of Israel is perhaps best captured in this passage from Deuteronomy 6. It says, Israel, listen, our God is the Lord, only the Lord. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your being, and all of your strength. These words that I'm commanding you today must always be on your mind. Recite them to your children. Talk about them when you are sitting around your house and when you are out and about, when you are lying down and when you are getting up. Tie them on your hand as a sign. They should be on your forehead as a symbol. Write them on your house's doorframes and on your city's gates. When the kingdoms of Israel and Judah began to rely on and place their trust in these other sources of life and security. These, these Egypts, these, uh, the, the, the wealth and the power that so often tantalizes us, the unity of this life that they're speaking of began to fall apart. And so too did the nation. But God was not going to give up on God's chosen people. In Isaiah 29, just before the the passage we read earlier we hear this the Lord says since the people turn towards me with their mouths and honor me with their lips while their heart is distant from me and their fear of me is just a human command that has been memorized I will go on doing amazing things to these people shocking and startling things The wisdom of their wise will perish, and the discernment of their discerning will be hidden. So if we take all of this and go back to Isaiah and King Ahaz and these invading armies, we get to see one of these shocking and startling things. Remember, Ahaz and Judah with him have just chosen not to place their trust in God for protection and instead sought their protection from Egypt. God's response in that moment of fear and indecision to their lack of faith was the promise of a sign. And in Isaiah 7.13 we read, Then Isaiah said, Listen, house of David, isn't it enough for you to be tiresome people, that you are also tiresome before my God. Therefore, the Lord will give you a sign. The young woman is pregnant and is about to give birth to a son, and she will name him Emmanuel. And so some 700 plus years later, when the author of Matthew was trying to help us understand who Jesus was, who Jesus is, he came right back to this passage. And in Matthew 1, verses 21 through 23, we read, She will give birth to a son, and you will call him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now all of this took place so that what the Lord had spoken through the prophet would be fulfilled. Look, a virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. And Emmanuel means God with us. And so here we are. Right back in Epiphany. Only now, as we learn all these things and and we read that Jesus came to save us from our sins, I think that we might be able to understand that this is a lot more than just receiving a free pass on Judgment Day. Instead, Christ's salvation is one that is to, to heal this division in our hearts. In Christ, we're no longer going to be left to jump back and forth between placing our trust in God and placing our trust in our own wealth and in our own power. In Christ, we are invited to enter fully once more into God's eternal life, both now and in the time to come. Now, before I go on, I do think that it's critical to say here that our salvation That God's judgment of us, that God's love for us, does not require us to live this out perfectly. As Paul writes in Ephesians 2 8 through 9, you are saved by God's grace because of your faith. This salvation is God's gift. It's not something you possessed, it's not something that you can be proud of. We can never forget those words. As true as this is, however, I think that it's also really essential for us to understand where we stand in the story of salvation. The Bible, in short, was not written to tell the story about how you and I get to go to heaven. Instead, the story of salvation that we find spanning the entire Bible is the story of heaven returning to earth. It's the story of God working to reestablish God's kingdom in a fallen, creation, so that it might be redeemed, so that God's love can be all in all. As Paul continues in Ephesians, he he alludes to this, and in Ephesians 2, verse 10, he says, instead, we are God's accomplishment, created in Christ Jesus to do good things. God planned for these good things to be the way that we live our lives. And then elsewhere in Romans 8, Paul gives us a glimpse of of the cosmic scale and the importance of this new and good life that we're being invited into. He writes, The whole creation waits with breathless anticipation for the revelation of God's sons and daughters. Creation was subject to frustration, not by its own choice. It was the choice of the one who subjected it, but in hope that the creation itself will be set free from slavery to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of God's children. And so with this message in mind, I think that we can then return to Luke 4 and hear Jesus' words once more as he read from the prophet Isaiah. In his words, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me He has sent me to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to liberate the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the synagogue assistant, and sat down. Every eye in the synagogue was fixed on him. He began to explain to them, saying, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled as you heard it. And so this is all really exciting. But what does it mean? What does this look like in our lives from day to day? Well, after this chapter concludes, after Jesus' old neighbors try to throw him off of a cliff, Luke tells us that Jesus went out and he continued to go around and to teach in synagogues. And he began to collect disciples. And he healed people. And a lot of people started to follow him. And finally, here in Luke 6, in the passage that we read this morning, Jesus makes a stop for what's really his big first public speech. The people already know about his power and his religious wisdom, and now he's here to give us all a glimpse, a vision of God's kingdom. I think it's pretty safe to say that this probably wasn't what most people were expecting to hear. These words Happy are you who are poor. Happy are you who are hungry now. Happy are you who weep now. Happy are you when people hate you. And then, but how terrible are for how terrible for you who are rich. How terrible for you who have plenty now. How terrible for you who laugh now. How terrible for you when all speak well of you. How can we ever hope to understand words like these. If I was going to try to characterize this passage as anything, I might call it the exodus of the heart. You see, I think that there's a reason why it can be so hard for us to hear the truth in Jesus' words. When we spend enough time living in and around the world of Egypt, we really begin to see creation through Pharaoh's eyes, if you will. We begin to think that the, the, the essence of this world really is about this contest for power and wealth. We begin to think that we really do need to have money in order to receive the gifts of creation. We believe that our success does demand strength and speed, maybe a little bit of greed. And we even come to think that helping The oppressed means helping them to succeed in the very systems that have been oppressing them. But when Jesus was met with eyes that were filled with pain and longing and expectation, he didn't offer us a path to power in that world. Instead, he redirects the people's attention. He... He drew back the curtain to reveal that all of these systems, all of these structures in our lives, are really just this, this narrow facade that blinds us to the reality of creation, to the reality of the life that is forever moving in and around us. In Matthew 6:26 through 30, he, he does this by saying, Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your span of life? And why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? What I think Jesus is doing in moments like this is inviting us into a new vision of life. Jesus is discarding this old vision of Egypt, this kind of top image that I tried to show here, of competition and wealth, where each person, where each community, is trying to fight to control the blessings of life for themselves, to bring it to them. In its place, Jesus is pointing us to this world of mutual dependence and charity. It's a world in which the fullness of our being, when we give it into the world, becomes the source that supports and sustains the lives of others, and then they, In the fullness of their being, as it goes out into the world, becomes the source of our own sustenance and life. That's the world that Christ is inviting us into, through salvation. This is a world of gift. In Matthew 6, as Jesus continued this lesson about the birds and the flower, he said, therefore, don't worry and say, what are we going to eat? What are we going to drink, or what are we going to wear? Gentiles long for all these things. Your Heavenly Father knows that you need them. Instead, desire first and foremost God's kingdom and God's righteousness, and all of these things will be given to you as well. But notice what he doesn't say here is, Seek first God's kingdom, and all the money and power that you need will be given to you as well. Instead, God's kingdom is completely removing the middleman. God's kingdom is removing our power and our money and our governments and our markets from the picture of life. And instead, it's calling us into direct and personal relationships with one another and with creation. And in these relationships, the thing that is sustaining us is God's love. God's life as it is moving and living in creation. One of the best descriptions that I've heard about this way of living comes from Thomas Merton in his book, New Seeds of Contemplation. This book is actually about prayer rather than economics or wealth. But in God's creation, as the Bible is helping us to understand this, this line between prayer and our daily lives, ought to be really, really blurry. And so here, Merton writes, the situation of the soul in contemplation is something like the situation of Adam and Eve in paradise. Everything is yours, but on one infinitely important condition, that all is given. There is nothing that you can claim, nothing that you can demand, nothing that you can take. And as soon as you try to take something as if it were your own, you lose your Eden. The angel with the flaming sword stands armed against all selfhood that is small and particular, against the eye that can say, I want, I need, I demand. When our vision is restored by Christ, I think we slowly start to see wealth, power for what they really are, rather than being the keys to our prosperity, they are merely obstacles to the life of gift and givenness that marks God's creation. Any of the parts of our lives that we are holding back for ourselves cannot be redeemed by God. Any part of our lives that we hold back for ourselves cannot be used by God to bring forth abundant life and God's creation. And when we understand the world in this way, the endless competition of wealth and power can be seen in all of its absurdity. Instead, we start to see the wisdom that's spoken of in Isaiah 30, verse 20 through 22. You remember this part? It says, Your teacher will not hide himself anymore, but your eyes will see your teacher. And when you turn to the right, or when you turn to the left, your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. Then you will defile your silver-covered idols and your gold-plated images. You will scatter them like filthy rags, and you will say to them, away with you. And that is the day that we will enter what I try to call today a gospel economy, and our king, will be none other than Christ. And as as strange as some of these ideas might sound to our ears, to our minds, I would suggest that we attest to its truth every week at this table. At the table of Eucharist, at the table of communion, Christ is here giving us his body and shedding his blood for us. We, in turn, approach the table empty-handed, humbly offering ourselves to Christ. And right at that point, where Christ's sacrifice meets our humble self-emptying, what we find is not death. It's not emptiness. What we find, instead, is the bread of life and the cup of salvation. This is an eternal truth, of course, but Creation is not fully separate from eternity. Creation exists through and is an expression of God's eternal truth. And so this Feast of Communion then carries us out into the world, into the Feast of Creation. It invites us to go out and meet one another, to meet creatures, to meet all of creation in this posture of humility and service and charity and love. And when we do that, again, we don't find our death and our poverty, but instead we encounter the life and abundance and the shalom for all people. And we will find ourselves in the year of Jubilee. But we're not there yet. And I think that when we come to realize just how deeply our lives are embedded within these structures and these processes of of wealth and power, it can be really overwhelming. It can seem like an impossible hope to ever escape this. How is it that we could ever get from here to there? But even here, I think that Jesus offers us words of hope. When Jesus speaks about the kingdom of God coming to earth, he doesn't suggest that it must come to us, fully formed, all at once. Instead, the vision that he gives us is that of an inbreaking kingdom of God. In Matthew 13, we read, He put before them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that someone took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all the seeds, but when it has grown, it is the greatest of shrubs, and it becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed in with three measures of flour until it was all leavened. For me, these images call forth this idea also of like grass and flowers that, that emerge up out of cracks in pavement and asphalt. And I think that at least part of our calling as Christians is to find those places in our world where the kingdom of God can still be seen despite all of our best attempts to suppress it. And when we find it, we then can begin this process of pulling back the sides so that more and more of God's life and light can shine through. And the really wonderful thing is, and I think a lot of this is already happening in our midst. It's there when we create these spaces and these times where we can gather with our neighbors to form the bonds of a common life together. It's there when we gather downstairs, around the table, or in one another's homes so that we can celebrate life and to form relationships that will sustain us both emotionally and practically. It's in the gifts and the skills that we bring into community to share with one another. It's even there in the garden where we encounter the fruit of God's creation and learn the rhythms and the practices of care for God's creatures. And so can we imagine ways where we can take these opportunities and even expand and enlarge them more? Can we imagine growing these to be our actual sources of life and sustenance so that we can become less and less dependent upon our own money and power and more and more dependent upon God, upon our community, and upon creation. I do think that this hope is waiting for us. And so for a final word, after Luke finished his gospel, he he went on to write the book of Acts. And early on in Acts, he gives us a couple of glimpses of the life of the early church that's living into this vision of life, living into this truth of Jesus' words from Luke 6. I think there are good words to be left with today. He writes Awe came upon everyone because many signs and wonders were being done by the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute them to all as any had need. Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. May it be so. Amen.